0: Well, um, morning everybody, great to see you. Would you like to grab a Bible if you've got one, or a mobile phone, and turn up that reading that we just had from Nehemiah chapter 12, and uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for that amazing picture of true worship, uh, which took place on that day when all the people gathered together in Jerusalem for the dedication of this wall, and uh, met in the temple, and praised you with musical instruments, and raised a great uh, um, song of worship. And we pray for the same Holy Spirit to come now. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need a temple. True worshipers worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray that you would uh, fill us with your spirit as uh, you teach us what it means to truly worship this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I love that. Um, uh, reading from the Hardesty family. It's great to have the musicians, and what amazing musicians we've got here at St. Mark's. I don't know about you, but I, isn't the, the, the worship and the music is just absolutely brilliant here at St. Mark's. I wonder whether we might actually honour uh, those of us who've been leading us in worship this morning and who've been serving us uh, for doing such an amazing job. And um, if you've ever had anything to do with church music, you'll know that it's really not easy to impress uh, and please everybody. Everybody's got an opinion and a preference when it comes to the church music. It's too traditional, or it's too modern, or it's too long, or it's too short, it's too loud, too quiet. Everybody's got uh, an opinion, and uh, not least normally as the worship leader. Um, somebody said, uh, what's the difference between an organist and a terrorist? Anyone know the difference between an organist and a terrorist? You can negotiate with with a terrorist. Um, um, But everybody's got their preference about what they think the worship ought to be like. And actually, um, uh, you might be surprised to know that actually the church that Hannah and I were at before we came um, here to St. Mark's last year was a completely different style of worship. In fact, it was very traditional. And uh, when I would be leading the services there, I wore robes. And we had a choir. And we had the Book of Common Prayer from 1662, and we sung uh, the liturgy. And when I would lead the service, we would begin, uh, I would start off by singing, Oh Lord, open thou our lips. Like that, and then everyone had to sing back. and our mouth shall show forth thy praise. Like that, yeah. And uh, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. I mean, That is what we did every week, week by week. They absolutely loved it. And uh, do you know what? After three years of being there, I kind of loved it as well myself. But everybody thinks that their way of doing it is the way. You know, it's the way. I remember one um, dear godly sort of family friend of ours saying that true worship is just the voices with a piano accompanying and I remember thinking, because actually it's amazing when you, when you just hear people's voices sing, is it's really powerful to just hear the voices. But I do remember thinking, isn't it a shame that actually you know, uh, the piano was only invented <laughs> relatively recently? Isn't it a shame that the, you know, the church had to exist for most of its history without experiencing true worship with the piano? Uh, and that for the most of you know, three quarters of the history of the 2,000 years of the church, isn't it a shame that Jesus and the apostles you know, never actually got to experience true worship with a piano? or an electric guitar, or the Book of Common Prayer, or a smoke machine, or whatever it is that's your particular favorite way of doing it. The fact is, there is no, despite what anyone thinks, there's no blueprint in the Bible for the style of the worship. And actually, I think that's an amazing thing. It's one of the reasons why the Christian faith has been able to flourish uh, all the way around the world in different cultures and contexts. Everybody, the Africans do it differently than the Americans, do it differently from the Book of Common Prayer. Everybody does it differently. And uh, so while there isn't a blueprint, though, there are principles in the Bible for what ha- how our worship should be. And we've got one of them here, Nehemiah chapter 12. If you've got a Bible, I uh, hope you've got that open in front of you, or get your phone out if you don't have it there. And let me just uh, whiz through again, verse 27. And if you've been with us up to this point in the story of Nehemiah, we've been working it through it uh, week by week. And uh, this is really the celebration of dedication of the, of the city, because right at the beginning, remember, of Nehemiah, the city was destroyed. The people were in ruin and disgrace, and they were in exile. And Nehemiah, they came back. They began to rebuild, and they got the temple going, and they so, recommitted themselves to the Lord, and now they've got this great big, basically, a worship service uh, to the Lord. So here they are, chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall, the Levites, they're the worship leaders, they were sought out from where they lived, were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and music and cymbals and harps and lyres. And the musicians were brought together from the region, from the villages, from Beth Gul, For the musicians, I love this bit, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? A musical village where only the musicians lived. When the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates and the wall. And I, Nehemiah, this is talking, had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall, And I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. And one went one way around the the wall to the right. And here's all the list of the people with their trumpets. And uh, and they went off that one way. Uh, And then verse 38, the second choir went the other way, proceeded in the opposite direction. And I, Nehemiah, followed them on top of the wall. And then uh, at the gate of the guard, they stopped And then verse 40, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. That's the temple. So they went all the way along the walls, and their destination was to get to the presence of God, the temple. And uh, so there there we all were. There's all the list of the names of the people who were there. with their trumpets making loads of noise. And verse 43, on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. And I love that as well, that God gave the joy. We rejoice because they've been given joy by God. And the women and children rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. And what a scene. That, that is true worship. I mean, it is not a blueprint for us to follow. Otherwise, you know, we'd need to get into two choirs, and one of us can go one way around Clapham Junction, and then we'll get, you know, we'll meet back here. And Richard Bell's going to have to get rid of his lovely red electric guitar and get a lyre or a harp or something. It's not a blueprint. But there are principles in here. For our worship, what should, what should shape true worship? And uh, there's at least four things, I think, here. True worship, it should be four things. It should be joyful, it should be holy, it should be public, and it should be sacrificial. So let's look at those four. Firstly, true worship is joyful, because look at the start of that little bit in verse 27. What are they doing there? Um, they brought the Levites there. Why? To celebrate Joyfully to celebrate joyfully with songs of thanksgiving. That's what they were there to do. And you know, when you're joyful, what do you do? You sing. And singing is an overflow of joy. And it's a great tragedy, isn't it, that we're not actually able to kind of sing all together at the moment, obviously for kind of epidemiological reasons, so we're not able to do that at the moment. But I hope that you're able to sing in some other way. I hope you can sing in the car or in the shower or in the bath or just, I don't know, walking down the street. Singing is an overflow of joy. I remember talking to one of my um, good mates who uh, is not particularly musical, and um, you know he doesn't much enjoy the music in church. I think he probably would get rid of the singing if he could. You know, I think he finds it a bit awkward or embarrassing, and maybe you feel a little bit like that. Um, and so he mumbles his way through the hymns normally. Well, I once went with him to Upton Park to uh, watch his beloved West Ham play, uh, when West Ham was still in Upton Park. And what does he do? We're sitting there. The players come out onto the pitch. He's on his feet, hands in the air. You'd never catch him with hands in the air in church. But there he was. And what was he singing? Phil Thane knows. <laughs> I'm forever blowing bubbles. Pretty bubbles in the air, like belting it out with his arms raised like that with all the thousands of people. Because that's, if you know anything about West Ham, that's their song that they sing. And there he was. And that's worship. It's an overflow of joy, of kind of celebration and singing. And now... West Ham fans, you know, they don't necessarily always, I don't think, have something to sing about, Um, but Christians do. The people of God have got something to sing about. Think about the journey that these uh, Israelites have been on from the start of Nehemiah. They've been taken right through from a place of shame and disgrace through to a place of thanksgiving and salvation, and the, the kingdom of God had been established. It was God's people, were in God's place, they were living under God's rule and blessing, and so they had plenty, they were singing about their salvation. And if we're Christians here this morning, you know, we have been lifted up from a place of shame and disgrace, and we've been uh, rescued from sin and death and hell, and we've had our past wiped clean, our sins. Forgiven and we've been lifted up out of the pit and had our feet set on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and we've had a new relationship with God restored, and we've been equipped and empowered with the Holy Spirit to be able to live in the present, we've got the future to look forward to of glorious immortality, of a heavenly inheritance for us. I mean, it's no wonder Christians want to sing. We've got plenty to sing about. So the first thing is that true worship is joyful. If if our worship in church ever gets boring, or dull, or lifeless, or half-hearted, then sack the worship leader. No, don't sack the worship leader. But I think we can, at least, um, we're entitled to have a conversation about whether that's true worship. Because look at verse 43. On that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing. Because God given them great joy, the women and children rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. four times in that verse. And again I say, rejoice. So true worship should be, uh, first of all, joyful. Secondly, true worship is holy. True worship should be holy. Because um, look what the worship leaders did before they got going worshipping, verse 30. When the priests and the Levites, who were the worship leaders, had purified themselves, ceremonially, they purified the people the gates, and the wall. They purified themselves. And that's because true worship, it can never come from a place of unholiness. And you know, the Old Testament Israelites, well, they've got, a, it says, a ceremony. They had a ceremonial a kind of a ritual for you know, making themselves holy. We don't have that anymore. But it's nevertheless, absolutely, it, it, we can't. How can we possibly come into the presence of God from when we're unholy? And that's where they went. The uh, Nehemiah led them into the house of God In verse 40, how can unholy people come into the presence of a a holy God who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And, you know, talk about lifting hands in in worship. And Paul says, I want everyone everywhere to lift up holy hands. And how can we lift up our hands in worship when they're unholy, when, what have they been, what money have they, unholy business deals they've been tr- conducting throughout the week, or unholy websites they've been clicking on on Saturday, and then to lift unholy hands in worship on Sunday is an impossibility. And that's why we have, every, every week we always have a confession, and we probably skip over it quite quickly, and, um, you know, but actually that's so important, that we actually come, and it's not just that little 15 seconds on a Sunday, but that it should be a life style of turning to God in repentance and confessing our sin to him together. The worship service of the prayer book begins with the collect for purity. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. What a prayer if we're going to come into the presence of Almighty God. To whom all hearts are open. He knows everything in our hearts. He knows our desires. He's no secrets with God is there. But, and yet, he loves us all the same. And he will, by the power of his Holy Spirit, cleanse us and enable us to worthily magnify his holy name. We can't worship him unless we've been made holy. And that's why, verse 44, the second half of it, the ministering, the priests, the Levites, they performed the service of their God and the service of purification. That's what the priests did, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers according to the commands of David. True worship, joyful, holy. Thirdly, public. This was public. And I love that thing, verse 43, where they, it says the sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. And wouldn't you love to know just exactly how far it was? You know, how, how many miles did the kind of the sound of this worship travel? And it's not exactly surprising when you look at the instruments that they were using in verse 27, They celebrated joyfully with songs of thanksgiving, with the music of cymbals, harps and lyres. And, you know, um, I love the fact that cymbals are first on the list of the instruments. You know, it's not like they had the harps and the lyres. And they were accompanied by a lovely rhythm section that kind of gave a bit of a beat. No, it was cymbals first, and they made, basically, they made as much noise as they can. And I think sometimes people go, well, isn't the music a little bit loud? Well, Well, I think, I think noisy, loud worship bands are pretty biblical as far as I can see. And they basically worked out, I mean, they didn't have a PA system to turn up, but they basically were like, how can we make as much noise as possible? We're going to need symbols. We're going to need to be heard far away. We want to be heard all the way over in Moab and Samaria. Think of all those people. We want everyone to hear. We want to hear all those people who were opposing us. Remember earlier on in the story of Nehemiah where they had all that opposition? Sanballat the Horonite, remember him, he was saying, oh, you idiots, what are you doing trying to build that wall? It's never going to work. It's a rubbish wall, you know, even a fox climbing up there is probably going to knock the wall over and say, so Nehemiah said, well, you know what, let's get up there. Verse 31, we're going to get up on top of that wall and we'd better get a choir up there. In fact, no, we'd better make it two choirs. Two medium choirs? No, make it two large choirs. We're going to get right up there on that wall. We don't want them just to hear us far away, we want them to see us for miles around. This was public. It's, you know, if I may say so, I think it's almost like the complete opposite of the Freemasons. And you walk past and you wonder, what are they up to in there? And they've got this building you never can see, you know, there's no windows, you can't see in, and you don't know, it's all secret. And you think, what are they doing? And, But here, no, it's, it's a public thing, they're right out there in the open you could see him and hear him from miles away. And there's something about our worship which needs to be a public witness. And that's why it's so special that we're able to actually get together again in public. You know, awful for us not to be able to worship together publicly um, for during lockdown. And obviously there's good reasons for that. But amazing that we're able now to gather, because there's something about worship which should be a public witness. And uh, so that's uh, why they were up there. And I love the fact that Ezra, verse 36, was there leading the procession. The teacher of the law, you know, sometimes well, I'm more of a teaching kind of person or more of a worship kind of person. Well, no, the teacher of the law, he was there leading the procession, going in front of one choir and the second choir, Nehemiah, verse 38, was going behind. So, you know, Ezra's going out in front, Nehemiah's coming behind. It's a public witness. High and lifted up for everybody to see. Thirdly. Fourthly, true worship, joyful, Holy, public, but fourthly, sacrificial. Sacrificial, verse 43. On that day, they offered great sacrifices. And you know, very often people point out that worship, it's about so much more than just singing. You know, worship, it's not not less than singing. You know, worship involves singing, but it's about not just singing, it's about our whole life. It's about giving our entire lives over in surrender to Jesus. It's about giving everything to him, including our time, our service, our talents, our money. You know, Paul says in Romans 12, therefore, in view of God's many mercies, offer your bodies, in other words, your very whole life to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, what's true and proper worship? True and proper worship is laying down our very lives, our whole everything. Not just, I give you my heart. What about my wallet? You know, what about my diary? And these guys, well, they weren't just singing songs, turning up and just having a nice sing song and then going home. No, they offered great sacrifices. Verse 44, they had to get people. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms. They had to build a room to put more than one room, to put all the contributions, first fruits, tithes. In other words, they, they, you know, they, they put their money. they put their money where their mouth is. And their worship involved giving. And um, I think this is probably a moment for me really to say, um, on behalf of the leadership of this church, just a great big thank you to everybody who has given so sacrificially, actually over well over 33 years, however long some marks's been going, but over this season of transition, and just you know speaking personally in terms of we knew we were going into an interesting season with our leadership moving on and, and, and a change there. And you know, my biggest, or one of my biggest fears, I think, was what, what happens if we get into financial difficulty? And at one point I thought, well, it, it looked like we might do. Um, but you know, praise God, that hasn't happened. We actually budget um, for regular monthly income. And we, got, we budget for regular giving and irregular giving because sometimes people just write us a check out of nowhere, and that's amazing, and thank you. Anybody who writes a check out of nowhere, it's brilliant. But we can't budget for that because we don't know when it's going to happen. What, what we do budget for is um, month by month, people just giving faithfully, sacrificially, by standing order, direct debit every month. And the figure for this year for 2020, which we budgeted for, was £41,000 a month. That's how much it costs to pay everybody's salaries, put the, keep the heating going, you know, and all the rest of it, £41,000. Do you know, over the last six months, um, the average regular monthly income has been 43,000, 43 and 43, And so that's just a, a huge thank you from me to everybody who, because uh, uh, I think that's amazing. It's an absolute miracle. And people have given so faithfully, so sacrificially. And, um, and that's what these guys did. And that's what we're doing as well. So thank you. And perhaps also just a kind of maybe a a challenge to anybody, we will be thinking about this a little bit more in a few weeks' time when we think about giving and serving and membership. Our vision uh, series of kind of talks is coming up in in November. Uh, We think a little bit more about um, our finances. But anybody who's never thought about that before, that actually our worship, it's about giving everything. It's about laying our lives down, including um, our money as well. And perhaps, you know, there are those of us who are there at the moment. Everyone's wondering what to do with their money. You know, where can I make a good investment? Where's it going to be safe for the long haul, going to provide a return? Well, Jesus says ultimately all financial investments ultimately fail, uh, except for those invested in the heavenly bank of the kingdom of God. And uh, so if you are looking for somewhere to invest your money, then I can see Sarah Locke is just over there. She's the treasurer. Uh, Go and have a word with her. Um, and just in case you think, oh well, we don't need to because everybody's been so generous already. Well, actually, it, what this enables us to do is to put some money aside, and because any minute now we're going to have to pay for a new boiler, which is about to probably break, and that's going to cost thousands of pounds, and nobody's going to want to pay for that. So, um, thank you so much to everybody who uh, has been giving so generously. Um, so that's so. There's four things about true worship: it should be joyful, it should be holy, it should be public, it should be sacrificial. You might say, true worship is a sacrificial, holy, public celebration. Or true worship is a joyful, public, holy sacrifice. That's really what what worship is. And I wonder how that lands with you. Jesus says the Father is seeking worshippers, looking for true worshippers. I don't know how it makes you feel, but if you're anything like me, it weighs me down a bit because you know what? There's only one problem with all of this, and that is (laughs) four problems. I'm not particularly joyful a lot of the time. My emotions, they go up and down. I go hot and cold. One minute I'm in love with the Lord, the next minute my heart's gone cold. not particularly holy as I'd like to be. I'm not necessarily all the time that public with my faith. I kind of duck a lot of opportunities in order to be able to be a witness. And certainly sacrificial, I don't know, I give... Generously, I suppose. But would I say I am give sacrificially? I don't know. I'm not the perfect worshipper. And I dare say, neither are you. Uh, I'd be pleasantly surprised if anybody here perfectly fit that bill. And do you know what? Not even Nehemiah. He wasn't even the perfect worship leader either. Because as we keep spoiling the end of the book of Nehemiah, we keep ruining the ending. And here it is. Look at this. It didn't, didn't last. So verse 47. Look at the way the passage finishes up. So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah... All Israel, everybody, contributed the daily portions. That's part of their worship. The daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. Okay, so that's how this great chapter of worship finishes. What happens five minutes later, chapter 13, over the page, verse 10. Only a minute later, Nehemiah learns that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service, they'd all gone home. They all went back to their own fields. And so this great high moment of true worship... It fizzled out. And that's why we can't have confidence in ourselves. We can't look to ourselves. We can't look to our amazing musicians. We can't look to Samuel. As much as we love Samuel leading worship, we can't look to him. We can't look to our new vicar, Martin, and his wife Emily, starting in just every week's time. We can't put our confidence in them. They're not going to be able to lead us faithfully. work. We can't even look to Nehemiah. We need to look to the true and better Nehemiah, the one who was perfectly all of those four things, the one who was the most joyful man who's ever lived, Jesus Christ. In fact, on the night before of his arrest, in the upper room with his disciples, when he'd have thought, just as he knows he's about to go to the cross, you might have thought, well, he might be a bit glum. No, he said, I've told you these things so that my joy, imagine that, the joy of Jesus. I've told you these things so that my joy would be in you and your joy would be complete. He's the most joyful man who's ever lived, the most holy man who's ever lived, obviously. Public, I mean, he wasn't lifted up high, on a wall but lifted up on a cross as he made the ultimate, the greatest act of sacrificial giving by laying down his very life and so we need to look to Jesus, the true worship leader. Ezra and Nehemiah went behind and before the people as they led them into the temple, into the presence of God. Jesus Christ, the true Ezra, the true Nehemiah, the true worship leader goes behind us, before us as we, his people, follow in his wake and enter into the very presence of God thanks to his example. So Let's pray, uh, shall we, that his Holy Spirit would come and enable us to be true worshippers who worship the Father and spirit and truth. Shall we stand and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you so much for uh, just this glimpse into a real high point, a real a high moment of, of worship, an amazing scene where... The worship was so powerful. The sound of it was heard far away and there was noise and rejoicing. And we lament, Father, that so often our worship falls short of that which you've asked us to give. And we're not holy particularly or joyful or public or sacrificial so much of the time, but Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the true worship leader. And we pray that you'd help us to follow his example. Thank you that his worship is what truly satisfies you. As we just heard in that song, on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And we thank you that you're satisfied with Jesus Christ and his sacrificial worshipful offering. And thanks to him, you're satisfied with us as well. And so we pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and make us worshipers, people who lay down our very lives and offer you our bodies as a living sacrifice, our true and proper act of worship. We pray that you'd make us all of these things for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.